0: Welcome back to another episode of the podcast, Hopeless Romantic, The Untold History of Ethiopia. Did you guys miss me? Did you guys miss talking about history and Ethiopia? I hope you guys learned something from the previous podcast. Uh, This is when we really started getting into it. And, well, we have more to talk today. I hope you guys are ready. With that being said, let's gather our thoughts to do today's prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Holy, holy, holy is your name, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, we ask you to open up our hearts to help us learn about our history and guide us in the right way. God, we ask you to bring peace into this world and to our nation. we call you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in the intercession of the Virgin Mary and that of the angels and saints, we pray. Amen. All right. All right. Well, uh, we're right uh in hopefully we're gonna end um the podcast for chapter two today which reminds me if you haven't gotten my book so far what are you doing go get the book it's on amazon or as your parents might say amazon that joke never gets old um and if you're not following me already on instagram be sure to follow me on Mulina on instagram or twitter Mulina 6 and I want to take the time to thank my patrons who have been supporting me through these times. I honestly wouldn't be able to make these podcasts for you if it wasn't for your support. Thank you again. And if you, that listener, wants to be a support and become a patron, you may do so by going to patreon.podbean.com forward slash Dawit Mulina. Well, let's continue where we left off. Uh, I hope you guys learned something about... You know, last time we talked about the name Ethiopia, where it comes from. And it's not something to be embarrassed. It's actually something to embrace. And we talked about the emergence of the great kingdom of Aksum. um, This time we're going to talk about, well, I don't know how awesome we are. We Ethiopians. Yes, yes. We are awesome. You know, like, I'm not just saying that. Um... And, and especially Ethiopia is a special place And when people talk about this I'm always like ah, You you know like Nationalistic person you But I mean it, So if we look at um, Just the location Ethiopia was actually one of the best places to live In the world And um, Like for example when you go to the Bible You hear about this promised land I hope This is not new to you If you've read the Bible at any point in history You've probably come across this thing called the promised land You know that the Israelites were often talking about this promised land And Moses was talking about this promised land And it's like a very important figure And the Israelites are journeying time and time We have to go to this promised land And um. The reason why the Israelites wanted it And it wasn't just the Israelites If you read the Old Testament You see that enemies often came to this land To to fight against them and, and and this, then, and third And it wasn't only because God promised this land to the Israelites But because it was located in a region known as the Fertile Crescent Now, if you learned about history You know what the Fertile Crescent is um, And maybe, I don't know, from that name You may be able to tell that the land was extremely fruitful This is why the Bible refers to this region as the land of milk and honey. Um, In ancient times, and even nowadays, you can say, people wanted to reside in a region where their land could provide them the most amount of food with the least amount of work. Makes sense. There was no giant, Safeway, Kroger, whatever you call it, uh, in your specific region. I don't know where you guys shop for food. But back in the day it was all farming And it makes sense They wanted to live in an area where the soil was fruitful Fertile crescent uh, was just that So for the Israelites that was the promised land For our ancestors it was Ethiopia The land much like Israel was able to produce wheat, barley, lentils, oats, taf, peas, beans, cotton, and so on, and so much more. I mean, this was not just the land producing these crops, but even early Ethiopians had to do a good amount of work, like labor. Take, for example, taf, the source for our, you know, injera. I keep eating injera. My friend tells me that's why I'm fat. I don't believe him. Injera is healthy. Eat it. Everyone eat injera. But injera um, Requires a lot of labor To produce uh, This this food But the, Speaking of injera uh, The reason why I'm intrigued by it And I wrote about this in the book as well Is because It, it, it teaches us about the society's ethics Back in the day um, Like if you've ever eaten injera one of the things that you recognize is that it's a circle. It's not a triangle, a square, or anything like that, but it's a circle. Now, why is it a circle? The idea is that our forefathers, as it appears, wanted to show that the shape symbolizes how it's meant to be eaten with the community. See? Regardless of which side one sits on, no one has advantage over the other. Everyone has equal access to the food. When you are eating, you begin at the outer sections so work your way to the middle, the place where you meet the hands of the others who have joined you at the dinner table. Just by injera, the food of injera. You can see that our ancestors were both hard workers, because it required a lot of labor to produce it, and also wise. They were very wise. And they were thinking of ways to teach the society, look, let's come together as a community. I think that's a beautiful thing. Of course, what made Ethiopia a great place to live wasn't just the soil, but also the exact location. Having access to water in the old days meant everything. And that's exactly what the ancient Ethiopians had, access to water. I talked about this before, but the region of Adulis in northern Ethiopia, in particular, became the center of atta- attention for not just Ethiopia, but also for the world. Adulis became the main port where trades were being po- made possible with foreign nations, including nations like Roman and Byzantine empires. Now, all this to say, just because of the location of Ethiopia, there were many blessings the land provided for our ancestors. So when we say Ethiopia is great, we're not just saying it. It really was a great place to live because of the soil, because of the location, and because of the people. Now it's just not about the location, but uh, Ethiopians also were ahead of their time. One feature that made this empire great was the ability to write. For example, uh, I would hear many times before people saying, you know, Ethiopia is a great nation because it has its own alphabet. And I'm like, so what? Like mm, That doesn't sound cool. It doesn't sound exciting, but it kind of was. It was very impressive given the time period that they were writing. By the 1st century, the Giz alphabet was already being used and Ethiopians were writing items on inscriptions. That's really, really, really early. You have to understand, writing in the 1st century was what the space race is for us in present day. Imagine hearing the Ethiopians went to the moon or Ethiopians were leading the effort in AI, artificial intelligence, or Ethiopians were leading the fight against cancer through their innovative health practices. (laughs) Seems like a distant thing to think about, but that's kind of like what it was in the first century. Writing was a unique, innovative skill set that very few possessed. To put it in perspective... The Arabic language Which is now being used across the world Is not believed to have been written down Until right before the advent of Islam In possibly the 5th and 6th century With a few exceptions Speaking of Islam Did you know that the Ethiopic language Even played a minor role in shaping the Quran? Did you know that? You don't believe me, do you? Well, I invite you to look up the Qur'an Don't say like Oh Deacon Dawi told us to read the Qur'an Well this is for a specific purpose And if you actually look In the Qur'an The third chapter Verse 52 It explicitly says al-hawariyun allahi, Which means We are the helpers of Allah Or rather the disciples said we are the helpers of Allah The part that we are interested in is The word al hawaryun uh, If you speak Amharic Or gone to church Then you probably Are familiar with this هواريون. It Sounds a lot like Hawariyat Right? Well <laughs> You're not alone Renowned linguists Such as Sigmund Frankel I don't know how to pronounce that name It's probably German, I think he was German Have come to realize that this word is not Arabic Nor can it be reasonably traced to another language Except for Ethiopic This word, which is found in the Quran more than five times Can be traced back to the Ethiopic verb Hora Which means to go Hence the word Al-Hawaryun Which resembles the Ethiopic Haryat Carries the meaning the ones who are going, or more appropriately, the disciples. Using similar analysis, Frankel identifies words like tafasaha, hamer, mazahaf, tomar, and over 70 others he thinks are contenders of Ethiopic words that found their way into the Quran. This means the Ethiopians had an influence in other parts of the world like the Middle East. This is remarkable when you think about present day Ethiopia and how it's being portrayed in the world. In fact, as we will see in future episodes, the Ethiopians even journeyed down to present-day Yemen to rescue some Christians that were being persecuted. But the the Ethiopians were not just making an impact on other societies, but they were learning from them as well. Although I just mentioned that Gitt's script was in practice since the 1st century, it wouldn't be until the 4th century, during the time of Azana, that the alphabets took their final form. You see, Giz alphabets like Semitic languages like Hebrew, Syriac, Arabic was unvocalized prior to the 4th century. Now, if you don't know the Giz alphabet, I, I might lose you for a bit, but try to stay with me. Back in the day, each consonant received a character. So to write my name, Dawit, you would use the Giz characters, duh. W and ta. but because the Gees alphabet was initially unvocalized, people would have to guess how to pronounce my name. <laughs> but once they were vocalized in the fourth century, they were uh, seven vowels were attached to each consonant, hence giving you da do di da de de do. Hence, now I can write da we t, and no one has to guess how to read it anymore. I hope you can see how cumbersome this way of writing must have been. By the way, keep in mind, other Semitic languages like Arabic are still unvocalized. Although there is something called diacritics, which are added onto Arabic characters to signal the vowels of the word, it still creates much problem if these diacritics are not added into the consonants. For example, look at the verb to be in in Arabic, which is kana. To say, I was, when we conjugate the verb, I was, is kuntu. You were would be kunta. And then, you were for feminine would be kunti. But if the diacritics are not there, it would just be k-n-t. And it would be up to you to say, is it I was kuntu, you were kunta, or you were feminine kunti. You wouldn't know. And actually, when you read Arabic manuscripts, they rarely use these diacritics. So it's up to the reader to figure out who is the verb. Is it masculine, singular, first person, second person? And it's a very cumbersome work. But Ethiopic, once the vowels were added, got rid of these um, issues. As far as the Ethiopic alphabet, the reason why I bring this up is because some linguists have suggested Ethiopians likely learned of this technique, namely attaching vowels to consonants, from the Brahmi script, which was in practice in South Asia. If this is true, this means that Ethiopians as early as 4th century had contact with people as far as South Asia. With the final script underway, Ethiopians started writing history for future generations. Th- this is why writing was important. When something is written down, Becomes part of history. And Ethiopians understood this very well. And many of the inscriptions they made. Was written for future generations to read. And learn about. One such inscription is the Monumentum Adeltenium. I'm not sure. How many times I've mentioned this inscription before. And I guarantee you I'll mention it a few more times. But. uh, It's important. And that's why I keep mentioning it up. If. By now, you haven't looked it up, the monumentum and deltanium, you should. I keep mentioning it so you could look at it and see what's there. It's very, very important that we all do so. Now, this monument is believed to have once been a two-piece inscription made on a stella and another on a throne-like monument made out of marble that was built at the entrance of the trading center for Dulus. Although this monument has not been discovered yet, we know about its existence through the notes of the famous historian and traveler Cosmos Indicopolis. While traveling around the shores of the Indian Ocean, he frequently visited a and he was engaged in trade. It must have been here that he saw these famous Greek inscriptions. Intrigued by what he and his fellow traders saw and by the request of, by the then Emperor King Calib, he made a copy of the Greek inscriptions during the good old days. Inscriptions were uh, made into monuments or stellas, often by kings who would usually use them for propaganda. These inscriptions were no exception. So the reason why they're important is because they contain the names of the territories the Aksumite king had engaged war with. Some of the names are as follows Gaze Agami, Siguene, Awa, Singabini, Agabi, Tiama. I don't know. I, I don't know how to pronounce these names. But you could look at them for yourself. Now, the important thing that I want to mention here is, and I put this on a footnote in my book, but I want to um, make this point now. References to the tribes of Amara, Tigray, and Oromo are not present. In early inscriptions of Aksum In fact The earliest reference to the tribe of Amara Appears in 9th century And the earliest reference to the tribe of Tigre Is found in the 10th century Although it's not exactly clear The earliest reference to the tribe of Oromo uh, We don't see anything uh, Before the 12th century as well This means that Early Aksumite period Based on the evidence we have weren't aware of these tribes that we call ourselves with, Amara, Tegrayo, Oromo, and so on and so forth. This is not to say that the tribes didn't exist, but their names are just not found in written inscriptions or written documents. At least, I haven't found any. So when people want to... Relate their tribe back to first and second and third century The reality is the evidence just doesn't show That you can make that statement in an argument Now, although we may not be aware of it Others seem to have been aware of our greatness In fact, some even worshipped the ground we walk on, so to speak In the 1930s, when the Italians came to conquer Ethiopia, they came across one of these monuments that I'm describing, which had been erected during the time of Fox. Unfortunately, the monuments uh, collapsed at the turn of the first millennium, which, by the way, further investigation into the cause of the fall suggested an intentional temperament to the structure, meaning someone intentionally destroyed this monument. And for about a thousand years, the pieces of this monument had been laid to rest on the ground. But once the Italians came across these findings, through the personal order of Mussolini himself, the pieces were transported to Italy and eventually erected in the city of Rome. Someone told me the monument has been returned back to Ethiopia since. But still, I mean, think about that. Ethiopians, not valuing their own monument, destroyed it. But nearly a thousand years later, the Italians, who came to conquer the land, saw how precious of a jewel this monument was, and took it back and erected it in Rome. I feel like we do this all the time. We Ethiopians do not take time to value our own history, books, contributions to the world, whatever. Instead, we spend so much time trying to be like the rest of the world, it breaks my heart. But it wasn't just foreigners, but even early Ethiopians appreciated their history. But in my personal opinion, no one has demonstrated a greater respect for his ancestors and a love for his country than King Kaleb in the 6th century. As I mentioned in the earlier days of the empire the writing system did not incorporate vowels embedded into the consonants. Nonetheless, this did not prevent the Aksumites from writing on various monuments. And at this moment, like we discussed earlier, were often inscriptions of their political victories. Although other inscriptions like spiritual related items were included as well, this particular one that Uh, Khalib erected was meant to be political Since their achievements were written on these constructions generations that followed were able to read and learn about their history Continuing this tradition, Khalib resurrected one of these political monuments uh, that contained inscriptions of his achievements On one particular occasion which we'll talk about later on in uh, maybe on another episode, Khalib made an inscription on Estella with the previously unvocalized form of the script, thereby showing respect to the previous method of writing his ancestors used in the past. I find this remarkable. This was his way of showing honor to his ancestors, something we often neglect to do. On the topic of writing, one of the greatest contributions of early Ethiopians was this translation of the Bible. The Ethiopic Bible is believed to have been translated from Greek to Ge'ez as early as 6th century. If you don't know anything about biblical history, this is considered really, really, really early. Now, I know some church fathers in Ethiopian Orthodox Church argue that at least the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Giz, but the current uh, manuscripts do not show that to be true. Instead, they show that even the Old Testament was translated from Greek into Giz. Now, Many historians always thought that the Bible was translated much later than the 6th century uh, in Ethiopia, that is, until the discovery of Abba Karima Gospels. Uh, these manuscripts uh, has rightly gained international interest since they are considered to be one of the earliest fully illuminated Gospels in the world. If you do not know what the Abba Garima Gospels are, they are a set of three Gospels discovered in the northern region of Ethiopia. Now the second set of Gospels is believed to have been from a much later period and is of little use for scholars, but the first and third set of Gospels known as Abba Garima, 1 and 3 still are the subjects of many studies. Now, scholars argued these Gospels were likely from the 10th century or even later. But after the Carbon-14 radiocarbon analysis, it was believed that the Gospels may be as early as the 4th century. Now, you have to understand, uh, creating manuscripts was another innovative skill set to possess. It required that the Ethiopians... Learned that uh, how to make a manuscript through sheep skin and goat skin and they knew that these were good material to use for writing down documents. For the ink, the Ethiopians were able to mix vegetables together and prepare black and red ink um, as one and other inks were also used as needed. Make no mistake these guys were making groundbreaking scientific discoveries at the time. When we talk about translation of the Bible, we usually highlight the spiritual preparation put into it. And that is important to mention, but we tend to neglect the ingenuity that was involved as well. You have to remember, we're talking about 2000 years ago when most of the world could not read or write To put it in perspective, imagine living in a time wherein world leaders traveled to Ethiopia to get the best medical care, or students hoped to get a chance to come to our land for the best education, and immigrants sought refuge in our country, dreaming of a better opportunity. (laughs) Well, that's what Ethiopia was like back in the day. They had these innovative technology that they were able to use in order to advance in society. Unfortunately, unfortunately, this great empire, like others before it and after it, eventually came to an end. Although it's not exactly clear what was the precise cause of its decline, many historians point to the advent of Islam. That is, as Muslims began to have better control of the Red Sea, Ethiopians did not have access to the raiding routes like before. Think of it like a major sanction on the empire. Uh, If a nation is unable to make trades, well eventually they're going to have an economic downfall and uh, that's likely what happened to the Kingdom of Aksum. As uh, this economic downfall occurred, many Ethiopians started migrating south. And Ethiopia was never the same afterwards. Now, th- there were some attempts to come back up on top, like the Zagwe dynasty, which we'll talk about in future uh, episodes as well. But it was, you know, just never the same. Now, there's much that we can say, but, and, you know, for me, I love talking about the history of Ethiopia, especially an African nation because it gave so much pride to our ancestors. And I I, I wish that we also had pride in our history as well. And I hope you can see why I fell in love with Ethiopia, my true love. Sadly, we know very little about our history. We've not taken the time to learn about what that time period was like. Although the rest of the world has taken interest in it, we have yet to learn about our history. And yet, we spend day and night arguing about the history of Ethiopia. I wonder, how many of us really took time to learn about the history? For me, learning about the genesis of Ethiopia is important because it gets me through these dark periods we're in. It's easy to lose hope in the great Ethiopia. But once you've read this and heard this podcast, I hope you can understand... Just how powerful our ancestors were. They made their mark. Now it's our turn. I hope you learned something from this episode. And uh, I want to encourage you, if you haven't bought my book, to buy my book. And you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter uh, if you're not doing that. And again, I want to thank the patrons for supporting me and if you want to become a patron you can do so by going to mulina stay tuned for the next episode in two weeks have a blessed week month day whatever you're doing, you do